Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. So here we are in Parshat Shalach, and the very beginning, the very first sentence, Avi, I, I take somewhat of an issue with, because we hear all about how the spies, the spies, the spies are the reasons why we couldn't enter Eretz Yisrael when we wanted, and, and it was the spies' fault, and the very first sentence is, So Hashem says, to Moshe, send spies. And to me, if you're, if you're telling someone to do something, and then they listen, and you don't like what they have to say, they're not at fault for what they answer. It's the trick question. It's like someone saying, do I look good in this dress? It's not, you can't win that, right? Or do I look good today? Because if you say, oh, you look great today, what, I didn't look good yesterday? Or you're calling me, you know, fat or ugly, whatever. It's... It's not so. So my question right off the bat is, who's to blame? Who who's really at fault for the spies giving the report that they did? Because if Hashem hadn't said send spies, then okay, I hear the argument. But if Hashem says send spies, then we're doing what we were told. So that's an interesting question because we know that this is not the only time B'nai Israel sends spies, right? This event happens again later on when Yehoshua sends spies in Sefer Yehoshua. And then he only sends two. So I'm not sure that it's a trick question. I think the goal really was to send spies and for them to report back on certain things. In fact, if we look at the Aliyah, the first Aliyah, it tells us all the things that they were supposed to look for, right? It says, right, uh, that they should go up on the mountains and they should see who are the people, how is the land, then who are the people that dwell there? Are they strong or are they weak? Are they few or are they numerous? And how is the land that they dwell in? Is it good or is it bad? Right? How are the cities? Are they open or are they fortified? Right? Is the land fertile or lean? And so, sure enough, when they come back with their report, we see that they give, what I will argue, amounts to an honest report. Right? They talk about the... Eretz Zavat Chalavudvash, it is a land flowing with milk and honey, and they bring back samples of the fruit, and it's just amazing. And then they talk about the people, 
and they give an honest report of the people, right? They're giants, they're huge, there are many people there. And then comes the critical moment. Because as leaders, they have a choice to either say, and we can do this, or to say, and there is no way we can do this. And so my, I want to argue that it's not about the report that they give in regard to the land or the people. It is attitudinal. It is their inability or unwillingness to believe in God that despite whatever hardships may be coming, they are able to overcome them. And if we look in Yoshua, right, which I believe is the Haftorah, and it talks about what happens there, those two spies go on into a much more difficult converse, uh, 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 component. They actually go into the city. They are hiding um, with, with uh, a woman and, uh, who's a harlot of some sort. They have to hide on the roof for three days to, to make sure they don't get caught, and then they escape. And yet they come back with a much more positive attitude that God can save them and that this can be done. All the more so because we see that when, when, when the original set of 12 spies go and come back, two come back with a positive report. Ten come back with the, with the, again, I won't call it a negative report, but with a negative outlook. And so the question is, why? What, what was the difference in what they saw? They all saw the same thing. They all have access to the same data but they're interpreting it differently. And I think that can really go to the attitude we have in life, right? Some people, we talk about some people seeing the world as half full and others seeing the world as half empty, right? And so this may be where I turn it back to you, Akiva, and say, what makes some people optimists and what makes some people pessimists? Can you change if you're one or the other? And... How do you be an independent thinker in a way that's positive and not a way that makes you a uh, outcast from society? So I think in general it's a combination of things that determine your initial interpretation of a situation. And a lot of that is based off of experiences. If you've experienced things to be uh, often having a negative outcome, the logical response would then, well, maybe you're a pessimist. Similarly, if things tend to work out one way or another, you might be an optimist. I will tell you that, generally speaking, we tend to discourage optimism or pessimism. The reason being, it, it's not fact-based. Right, because if if you're going based off of your past experiences, then how are you supposed to make a change to your experience if you're not able to perceive the objective data that's in front of you? So, really, what what we tend to do is when someone is, and generally, I don't have too many people coming to me because they're too much of an optimist. Um, but when people do come and they have a negative expectation or, or negative thoughts, as we as we call them professionally, cognitive distortions. Um, we, we often work on challenging those cognitive distortions. We work on challenging those immediate um, automatic thoughts and say, what's the evidence to support that? 
Is there evidence to support it? What facts do we have? Because, you know, I had a, I had a supervisor once tell me um, it, that at the end of the day, right, if we can find all of the evidence in the world that says, yes, you're a loser, okay, we can work on that. That's something we can change. But if your feelings about yourself, for example, are totally based off of your emotions in the moment, then sometimes you're going to be an amazing, perfect, infallible individual, and other times you're going to be lower than the lowest piece of dirt on the earth. Not helpful. If someone is able to look at the facts, you can be in a great mood and still realize there's stuff you need to work on. Similarly, you can be in an absolutely awful mood, and there's still going to be some stuff that you're good at and some stuff that you need to work on. So really, that's the that's the goal of of modifying those those thinking behaviors those cognitive those automatic thoughts um, that people tend to have that we tend to translate colloquially as an optimist or a pessimist so okay so 10 of the former slaves said to themselves everything's going to be terrible and in fact, the people who, again, were former slaves, I'm, I'm, this is a leading question, clearly, have come to the conclusion, and the people came to the conclusion, we should just go back to Mitzrayim. Avi, I'm going to throw this at you. Uh, they all witnessed Hashem destroying the people of Mitzrayim. It's an empty land, theoretically. I know it's not, but... More or less, all of the all of the military prowess, all of the the leadership, um, all of the people who would potentially hurt them, are gone, except for maybe a couple of the ones who weren't old enough to be soldiers yet and got a little bit bigger. But suffice it to say, it's it's not a terrible notion for someone to say, "Hey, these people aren't here anymore. Let's go back here." Why is that such a terrible? and an anti um, suggestion looking at it with that information in play or is that information not accurate anymore so I, I think it's been a bit of time since they've left Egypt um, certainly there's still some trauma that is that is there but I think that they've also seen a significant number of miraculous events at this point Right? We have to remember, not only did they see the miraculous events that happened in Egypt and as they left Egypt in crossing the sea, they've also received the Aserat Hadibrot, they have also received Man in the, in the desert, they've built the Mishkan. Right? This is now at least probably two years out since they've left Mitzrayim. And yet, these leaders, and again, they've been chosen to be the leaders, can't seem to get over that. Um, and so this, this may be a significant component, right? Because what we're going to see in the next few parshiot is the people believe them, the people begin to cry and wail, Hashem strikes them with a plague, um, and then, and, and tells them that they're going to be stuck in the desert for 40 years and they try to do... Uh, to make up for that by trying to attack the people and go into Israel, and they lose, 
oh, sorry, spoiler alert, if you haven't read this before, right? But, but uh, they, they, and they lose that fight. But at the end of the day, this is sort of, whether you say it's the sin that causes them to be in the desert for 40 years, or it is the straw that breaks the camel's back that causes them to be in the desert for 40 years. And so this is what tells Hashem, you're right. They don't have the mindset yet. We need people with a new mindset. We need people who weren't, who, who were born into freedom or who developed at a time when they could be free to be able to have this kind of faith and this kind of belief and not have that kind of trauma that draws, draws them back into Egypt. So Avi, I, I hear what you're saying, and I can't help but hear the entirety of what you're saying. So I'm going to push back a little, probably more of a question if this was psychiatrists and psychiatrists talking. But um, if, if what you're saying is it's been about two years since they left uh, slavery, and they witnessed an all-powerful Hashem who finally decided to take them out of slavery because they complained. So that one he listened to. And he punished those who put them into slavery with these miraculous plagues, then killed them in the Yamsuf, then took them and I know I'm quoting Dianu here, then uh, took them and, and gave them mana, and gave them the Asarat Dibrot, and then had 30,000 of them get killed because some of them didn't believe, and then there was this plague, and, and that reward, and this plague, and that reward. You can't help but wonder if maybe there's a reason why these people were a little skeptical. So... I don't doubt that there was skepticism. In fact, I think in some ways that's the problem, right? In other words, to go back to the very trite old joke, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Just one, but it has to want to change, right? So the problem here is, yes, those people who were in the desert at this time, the first generation in the desert or in the wilderness, could they have gone into Eretz Yisrael? They could have, if they had wanted to change. But what is shown over and over again, right, that it's not just a small group that we can get rid of, that it's not something that can be changed through amazing wonders and signs, is that these people are stuck in a particular mindset, whether it's because of trauma, whether it's because of their own experiences, whether it's because this is what's more comfortable for them, as strange as that may sound, right, living in, in the wilderness, in these tents, in this group. But for whatever reason, they're not ready to make the leap when God says, now it's time to go into the land. And God says, okay. And again, I'm going to make the argument it was the straw that broke the camel's back. This isn't just one event. This is multiple events where they have chosen to 
take the path of either least resistance or, or path of complaint and refer back to how good it was in Egypt. So in other words, they're rewriting history as to what had happened in Egypt. And it just gets to the point where he says, this is not a generation who can do what needs to get done. We see this later in Jewish history as well. King David wants to build the, the Beit HaMikdash, and he's told, you can't. You can build the foundation, you can prepare the ground, you can take Jerusalem over, but you don't get to build the Beit HaMikdash. Why? Because you are a man of war, and the Beit HaMikdash can only be built in a time of peace. And so here what we have is, right, saying this is a person or this is a generation that's not in the right mindset for what needs to happen. And so the rewards, the, the major event that is supposed to occur needs to be postponed until the next generation, until the people are ready. And that's what we see here. Maybe they just didn't have the right kind of rabbi. Which brings me to the next piece that Slightly off topic, but I think it really does fit with this with this parsha and everything we're talking about. Um, you know, Avi, it's it's not lost on me that some of us are not lucky enough to have someone in our in our lives, an educator, uh, uh, a rabbaic um, role model, so to speak, who can who can lead us down the path of looking at something like this, even and saying, no, it wasn't that the the entirety of the people. We're told, no, you're not good enough. It was a, you're not ready. It was a, a different mindset, a different attitude, a different outlook. And even listening to you talk about this, there's clearly something there that says when someone is going to look at you and say, well, I can't do this because clearly if God did this, then blah, blah, blah. And, and, and I think it takes a special kind of role model, a special kind of, in this case, halachic role model, rabbinic role model, to be able to, to get this. Uh, help us with maybe a little bit of, you know, I'm going to put you on the spot here, but I know you're on top of it and, and capable of, of giving it to us and saying, help us to figure out a little bit about not necessarily what makes an accessible rabbi, but maybe more so what we can do where we are in our lives to look for a rabbi who fits what our needs are because even the most machmir and the most halachically oriented of those rabbeim can either be an amazing match or not the right match at the right time. So, so maybe you can help us out a little bit with when we're looking for ourselves to see <coughs> who can be my rabbi. What should we be looking for so that we encourage ourselves to stay and continue and grow instead of saying, well, if this one said this, then I'm out? So I think the, the key is that people actually have to look, right? More often than not, people get rabbis by default. So I ask the rabbi that is my teacher in class. I didn't choose that rabbi. I was assigned that rabbi. Um, or I get the rabbi that's at the yeshiva I went to, and that becomes my rabbi. Or I went off to college, and there is a rabbi at that um, 
at that college, and that becomes the rabbi I ask questions of. Or I joined a community and joined a synagogue, and that becomes the rabbi I ask my questions of. And especially in the Orthodox community, where we become sort of landlocked by our shuls, right? Uh, in other words, we live around the synagogue and choose to join the synagogue, and sometimes we don't choose to join the synagogue because of the rabbi. Sometimes we choose to join the synagogue because it is a place that is geographically convenient for where we want to live or where we want to work, or because it has other kosher amenities and Jewish life amenities that we want, or because um, it, is, it, it is where we have found friends and and a community we want to be with, and the rabbi sort of comes along with it, right? And so people aren't looking for who their rabbi should be. I think that there is a great Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, Asei lecha rav, uknei lecha chaver. Make for yourself a rabbi, purchase for yourself a friend. And you would think maybe it should be the other way around, right? Purchase for yourself a rabbi. But the answer is, that's completely the wrong attitude. If you think the rabbi can be bought, then you'll never get an honest answer. Because if you think it's about, you know, whether I give a donation or how much of a this or a that I can contribute, whether financially or in my time or to the community, then you're never going to get a real answer. But if you've made that person your rabbi and you listen to what they have to say, regardless of whether you like the answer or don't like the answer, because that person knows you and has gotten to know you and understands the questions that you're asking and may even go and ask their rabbi with all of the nuances that are necessary, then that provides an opportunity. It provides an opportunity for you to get the halachic and hashkafic, right? The, the legal and the philosophical guidance that people need. The other side, the flip side, while we're there, right, is the idea, and it was many years until I understood it, was that you should never let money get in the way of friendship. So that's a separate conversation for another time, but I think it's also good and important advice. Um, at the end of the day, I think it's about going out and finding your rabbi. And these days, in some ways, it can be easier than ever, right? Because you can go listen to podcasts, you can go listen to shiurim. The question is then how to connect to that rabbi beyond just a one-way conversation where you're listening to his classes. How do you recognize, get him to recognize that you are there, that you are connecting to him, that you are interested in what he has to say and build a relationship. Um, and that can be a challenge, but it's definitely doable and definitely worthwhile because at the end of the day, the times when we need rabbis the most are the times when it is hardest to make that connection. So when someone in your family is ill or dying is not when you want to start building a relationship. At a time when your life feels like it's falling apart and you need somebody to talk to is not when you want to start the relationship. You want the relationship to already be in existence. And the last thing I'll say about that is 
If it's true for your rabbi, it's even more true for a relationship with God. The idea of prayer, the idea of study, allows us to build up our relationship with God in times that are good, so that we can have those difficult conversations with God when things are not good as well. So Akiva, to harp a little bit more on the spies, I'm going to share a short story, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll shout out to my friend Daniel Shaidi, who lives here in Boca, who once, when we were in high school, put a cup down in front of me that was not full, and he said, some people see a glass that is half full, some people see a glass that is half empty, I see a glass that's twice as big as it needs to be. And that was a light bulb moment for me. And it made me say, well, sometimes we have to break the box or think outside the box, as the phrase goes. And we need to question assumptions in order to be an independent thinker. I'm hoping you can tell us more about that, about questioning assumptions, about being an independent thinker, and whether we see that here or how we can implement it in our own lives. I think there's certain measures where being an independent thinker is extraordinarily valuable. And most of those powerhouse people of uh, business and adventure and, and just l real leadership, they're independent thinkers, right? Those who can really be successful. And I don't mean people who can placate to the masses. I mean people who can really look at something and say, I know a different way to do this, and then all of a sudden, wow, it's a better way. However, if you're an independent thinker that comes up with a great idea and has no way to get anyone else to listen to you, then that idea is about as valuable as not having it at all. And we can think, we can look at, there's all these different inventions, right? There's... I remember when I was in college, they were doing, for some reason, an introduction to, to any kind of healthcare course, and um, I believe they were talking about this person who patented a new kind of bicycle seat, and it was supposed to be more comfortable and better and not damaging to any of your internal organs, which uh, men of a certain age should realize there are ramifications to riding a bicycle seat that one should make sure they're checking. Um, it never got off the off the, the line. Why? Because it looked too different. Nobody was going to accept it as real. Nobody was going to get it. So that was a great idea that went nowhere. And so being an independent thinker doesn't mean that you cannot operate within the confines of society. We have some independent thinkers who have created these electronic vehicles. Some of these electronic vehicles, you push a button and it makes the sound of a regular combustion engine car. Why? Because if it didn't have that, then you wouldn't drive it. And they figured that out. Again, independent thinker that required and knew that they needed to think within the confines of society, or at least market within the confines of society. 
And so I think that's the important thing is that independent thinking is fantastic to a degree. Of course, we've only talked about positive independent thoughts. Those who have independent thoughts can also have destructive ones. And we see that not in this Parsha in the same way, although it brings up the question about the the, the man they found gathering wood in the wilderness, um, who then was or, stoned to death. Right, or Korah, who we'll read about in a few weeks. Spoiler alert, we're not there yet. Sorry. We'll, we'll get to Korah in a, in a little bit. But um, with that in mind, I'm actually going to toss this back in your direction, Avi, because we sit there and we talk about the atonement for public unintentional idolatry. And then the punishment for unintentional blasphemy. And then we have unintentionally desecrating Shabbos. There's a lot of things that are either intentional or unintentional that maybe it was an individual thinker, but it seems as if the masses get forgiven more often than the individual. So that tells us something about maybe being careful with your independent thoughts. And before I answer any more than that, I will toss it back to you, Avi. So the section you're talking about is a really important one because it talks about the three different types of sin that one can commit, right? The first type of sin is that which is, we'll call it completely by accident, right? Uh, It was without thought. It was uh, really, really not just unintentional, but but there was nothing that could be done to stop it. And to take sort of the most extreme case, um, we talk about somebody who is driving, driving carefully, their car is in good physical shape, they hit a patch of ice on the road that was unseen, slide out of control, and God forbid, hit and kill somebody. Completely unintentional, completely out of their control. They were traveling at below the, the posted speed, that was really should have been safe, and yet this terrible accident happened. Then we have the next level, which is unintentional, negligent actions. In this case, the person who was doing something is not completely not at fault. They certainly didn't want it to happen, but there was something negligent happening. They could have been more careful. Perhaps they should have checked their brakes, Perhaps they should have been traveling slightly slower. And while they are completely devastated and and feel terrible about the results, there's still a level of negligence that they have to atone for. And then there's finally the third level, which is on purpose. Somebody who sits and waits and does something on purpose because they wanted to do it or because they wanted to show somebody else what's what, right? Whether that's another person or it's God. And so when we're talking about people who are forgiven, people who have to bring karbanot, we're talking about cases of one and two, cases where it was completely by accident or cases where it was negligence, didn't mean for this to happen. I need to be more careful next time. 
I'm learning my lesson. The person who did it on purpose gets a far harsher punishment. And so when we look at these, at this Parsha, and we talk about, you know, what, how does this relate to our own lives, right? Again, we sort of need to look at, are these actions we're taking those that are, it was completely by accident, was I negligent, or was this somebody who was doing something on purpose So Akiva, the Parsha finishes off with the section from Shema about wearing tzitzit. And one of the things that seems to be true in Judaism is that Judaism seems to feel we need physical reminders of things. Men in particular seem to need physical reminders of things. Can you talk to us a little bit more about why physical reminders might be necessary, do we really need them or not, pros and cons, so on and so forth. So, uh, Avi, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer your question, but I'm going to unfortunately have to change it a little bit um, because I don't necessarily think that we always need those reminders for ourselves. Um, right, the tzitzit, sometimes you wear them out so that everybody else sees them and they know that, and really it's almost a reminder of I need to behave myself because I'm representing more than just me, which is the reality of many of the things that in Judaism other people know when, when we're Jewish and we represent and I think that it'd be helpful and mindful for all of us to be thought more thoughtful of realizing that when we are interacting in the world. Um, that being said, many of us tuck our tzitzit in. We're a baseball cap. And I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that most of us do not walk around with our brit hanging out. And why do I bring that up? Because the fact remains is that certain things are reminders for ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with that either. If it helps you to remember, I need to be mindful of what I'm doing, I need to be mindful of the world, because not only are other people watching me, but I should be watching me, and of course, Akadosh Baruch Hu is watching me, then that's of value, that's useful. Other examples would be, you mentioned uh, when I was looking at you weird about the question originally, you mentioned to me about a wedding ring. And a wedding ring, a shaitel, a talus, these also say things. These say, hey, maybe I shouldn't go and try and make a shidduch with this person because somebody else already did that. Or maybe they're not maybe maybe they're available and i can therefore go and have a conversation with them and see if there's something to be done and of course this may be done in a variety of different settings with shachan with a, a social activity at your shul or or you know any other kind of random interaction if we're talking non non judaically focused again 
we all see and we know we know who we are when we're in the grocery store, and maybe we don't have a towel, maybe we don't have a towel on because most of us aren't davening at Publix or or any of the other you know, Kroger if you're from somewhere else. But uh, the fact remains is, you know, if someone's wearing a shaitel, usually you know if someone is of our ilk, depending by the way they dress, and it may be something where you could say, hey. Do you know anything about so-and-so? Are they available? What have you? Suffice it to say, it's a, certainly a sign if you see somebody with a ring on their finger, more than likely they're not available. If you see someone with a shaitel on, more than likely not available. It's useful, it's helpful for us, and it does show us signs of also how we behave around others. We might behave differently around someone who is a fellow bachelor than someone who is a father and, and married and whether we should probably question how our behavior is around the bachelor is an entirely different conversation but I think that reminders serve as just that they are reminders and you can choose to see them and you can choose to see what they are you can choose to change your behavior or modify your thinking accordingly or you can choose to ignore them and so we had a little conversation about the difference between whether it's a wool tzitzit or mesh tzitzit or cotton tzitzit. Um, of course, the, the baguette, not the tzitzit themselves. And I would argue, which I will toss back to you to give me a different type of argument, but I would argue that the point, more than anything, especially in our everyday dress now, is the fact that you're taking the time and effort to get and put on a kosher pair of tzitzit and the fact that that has meaning and value that you are fulfilling a deraitza mitzvah that whether it is wool or cotton or mesh as, so long as it's, I mean I know there's special rules with leather I don't know anyone who's wearing leather tzitzit um, but I would argue whether or not it matters as much and maybe you can explain that and go into that a little bit more so I think like many things that we wear from a Jewish perspective, a lot of the what it's made out of connects you with particular subgroups within Judaism, right? So the, let's use kippot for an example, right? There is a particular group of people who wear kippot srugot, knitted kippot, um, that have a dugma, have, have a... Uh, pattern around the edge, and that, that puts them into a particular camp. Um, there are those who wear, you know, suede kipot. There are those who wear large velvet kipot. Some people live in communities where they, the, the men choose to wear black hats, right? Each of those are announcements of social standing and affiliation with certain groups. I think tzitzit play a similar role in the sense that for some people, right, wearing a pair of mesh tzitzit may make them feel like they are connected with a particular group of other like-minded people who would wear those type of tzitzit. For others, the choice to wear a pair of wool tzitzit with black stripes comes from what is the expectation in their community, and they may wear them even outside of their uh, shirt, right, in certain communities. Um, and it is similar whether you're talking about what kind of coat someone might wear or what kind of hat they might wear. 
just as much as, as their kippah. And so I think it has a lot more to do with dress as affiliation with particular groups than it does with any particular halachic standing. But Avi. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.